Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another great episode of Market Impact Insights. You know, through more than 100 episodes, the philosophy that's really guided the podcast has been in business. It's all about making a positive impact every day, and that's extending to my new book coming out this fall, which is The Impact Makers. You're going to be able to experience some of the best of my conversations with more than 75 of guests in that podcast, my own experience uh, around different dimensions of leadership. So stay tuned for more information on the release of that book coming this fall. And one aspect that we've talked a lot about on this podcast is the continuing innovation and evolution that's occurring within business. And that's driven through digital transformation, huge investments being made in that area. According to IDC, the direct digital transformation investment all in expected to reach $7 trillion by 2023 with continued growth year over year. And companies are just rapidly, we know this, adopting digital first strategies. Research shows 89% of all companies have already or plan to adopt that digital first strategy. So big investment, big commitment, but yet there are challenges out there to being successful and I am excited to explore this with my guest today, Steve Prentice. Steve is a specialist in organizational psychology. He focuses on the junction where people and technology interact. He helps people and organizations understand each other, the technologies they use, and the changes that these present. He's an accomplished speaker, a writer, a journalist, and a university lecturer who specializes in human acceptance in the areas of cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, blockchain, and the future of work. His fourth book is The Future of Workplace Fear, How Human Reflex Stands in the Way of Digital Transformation. And this delves into one key fact, that humans are driven by fear. Oh yeah, we are. You know that. And its roots are much deeper than they appear. Anyone who seeks to deploy digital transformation successfully really needs to understand this. We're going to explore this with Steve. Let's get going. Steve, welcome to Market Impact Insights. Well, thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Steve, um, you've had all this experience working with large, global, successful companies on their digital transformation strategies. And I'm just curious, though, going back, what really prompted your passion, your focus in that technology realm of, of exploring this area of workplace fear? Well, it kind of just appeared in front of me. When I was a student, uh, I was working jobs uh, like we all have to do. And uh, because I was working in tech, doing things like database design, just, you know, working on a computer, everywhere that I was at, I noticed people around me were afraid of the machinery. They were afraid of losing a document. You know, how, how do I know this thing is being saved? I mean, we're going back to 1990 here. Yeah. Um, how, do, how does this stuff work? What are these F keys for? There was this enormous fear of this, this machine that someone had put in front of them. 
that I don't know how to use it. I don't know what questions to ask. And I don't want to lose my job if I appear stupid. So it started then. I just saw this and my ability to explain it in a way that made sense to them um, sort of put that light bulb moment in my head saying, hey, there's a need here to understand this gap between end users and designers. And honestly, Dan, I've been doing exactly the same thing for 25 years. The the topic has shifted from Windows to blockchain, uh, but the, the, the concept and the concern remains the same. Yeah, it's just enduring, isn't it? It's that psychology. And we just observe uh, human behavior. There are just some enduring things. As much as things change around us and the world around us, new technologies, it just, there is the human factor that mm-hmm. is enduring. Yeah, it's, it's just uh, the human factor, of course, drives us. We are human beings, we are living creatures, and what people aren't very aware of is that we are driven by emotion. There are two sides to, uh, to us inside. There is an emotional side and a rational side, and these are constantly in battle. You think about something outside of technology for a moment. When you make a purchase, when you buy a pair of shoes or a car or a house, any size of purchase, you're going to rationalize the value that you're getting from this purchase, but ultimately your decision is going to be made on what feels right, what felt, I just had to have that. Everything we do is based on this filter of emotion, and the strongest emotion of all is fear, because that's what protects you from harm um, on a very, very basic level. So everything we do goes through that, but this gets missed uh, in the, the corporate context that when we design technologies or bring them in, we focus entirely on the technology and forget the fact that the end user is filtering everything through this fear of not what this will do for me, but what it will do to me. That's the, that's the big litmus test everybody experiences. Well, now the world, as we've talked about, going through this just tremendous continuous change, especially over the last five years, uh, huge changes in the way even people work. The pandemic has certainly brought along a whole new mindset in terms of organizational dynamics, but huge change environment we're in. So in the midst of this, Steve, what makes achieving true digital transformation even more challenging now than maybe it was even in recent history? I think, well, overall, society has ratcheted up its sense of fear and urgency in everything that we do. We're we're moving at a much faster pace. We get information uh, bombarded by information on a much faster pace. And I think people are struggling to comprehend everything. And this is resulting in some of the the social polarization we're seeing outside of the workplace. But frankly, uh, companies are under great pressure to remain competitive. They're seeing their competitors around the world bringing in new technologies and new techniques. And, you know, we've got to rush on that bandwagon and get there too. So the, the changes are brought in under the pressure of just staying competitive. But once again, they're brought in without a, an instruction manual. Um, employees of any level, from the executive suite through to the, the, the most recent hire, um, are expected to grab this stuff very quickly and work with it perfectly right away. Uh, but this isn't how humans work. It's not how they learn, and it's not how they grow comfortable with things. So that's where the big gap happens. And this isn't just simply a nice-to-have saying, oh, it would be lovely to have more time to learn. We're talking about open and severe dangers to an organization when one person in your, in your community doesn't learn how to use uh, password management software properly, that's all that's required to bring your company down to a crashing halt and maybe a permanent end. That's the big problem. Yeah, and something I've observed in, in organizations I work with is, and it's related to what you were talking about in that competitive pressure, is that higher sense of urgency to, I've got to collect more data. 
I, I want to make more data informed decisions, but Steve, we're dealing with massive amounts of data. Do you, do you see that coming into this whole fear factor as well? Just that people and organizations trying to manage so much information. How do you see that, that data intersection around all this? It's, it's very true. It's kind of like a mixture of Moore's law and Parkinson's law. Moore's law stated that the more storage space you have, the more you'll need because we just keep putting more data in there. And Parkinson's law states that uh, work expands to fill the time available. In this case, uh, you know, data expands to fill the need available. Um, it, it becomes kind of like a panacea that we feel if we have more data, then we have more control over our circumstances. Uh, but there become there comes a point where too much data becomes pure overload just in the in the time and the resources required to process it. So you're absolutely right. This is what I call in a, in a single term digital literacy, the capacity to be able to understand data and work with it, both on a corporate level, but also on an individual level. How to, for example, determine whether an email coming into your inbox is legitimate or if it's a spam, you know, some sort of a spam scam email. So digital literacy is that human capacity to evolve into the place we are now at technologically to be able to handle the data. That requires, once again, a greater focus on training and learning on all levels to recognize that it's the same thing if you wanted to learn how to swim and somebody takes you out into the middle of the Pacific Ocean and says, okay, try. It's kind of the, the really the worst place to try and learn how to swim. But that's where we're at in terms of managing data um, and assuming that if we manage the data, our problems will be solved. And that is not, that's not the case. That's right. And the other part of it is collection is one thing. And, and sometimes we can get overly infatuated, which is the act of collecting more and more and more to meet those laws you were talking about, but where's the interpretive capability, right? So um, data collection without interpretation that leads to meaningful action, it feels like that's a big waste of time, actually. Absolutely it is, because you know the interpretation concept, do you, do you turn to humans? Do you turn to artificial intelligence? Do you turn to just simply um, some sort of database formula? Um, how do you handle the information that you have? And this becomes a major problem that if it was a one-time dump that, you know, one year you get a whole bunch of stuff and now you have 10 years to figure out what to do with it, that's one thing. But while you're trying to figure this out, so more and more is coming in. And I think that companies are getting distracted by this effort of handling this, whether it's about understanding the marketplace uh, or just how to survive. We've seen some amazing evolutions. I mean, Google was based on the assessment of data in a in a radically new way. That's what uh, Page and Brin did back then. And Amazon, the same thing with the way that they scrape data to remain competitive down to the penny or the, or the fraction of a penny to sell products online. So there are some amazing innovations that have come along, but most organizations are, I think, struggling with the wrong side of their business. Um, they've been distracted by this, and uh, that becomes a big part of the challenges of digital transformation is the digital data that we, we continue to receive on a minute-by-minute basis. Yeah, some compelling examples there. Now, you talked about the fact that there are many organizations that haven't yet truly recognized this whole aspect of fear you know, inside the organization, how that might impact digital transformation. So thinking about those companies that, that haven't really gotten it yet, what are some of the biggest risks if they don't proactively address the fear? 
Well, I think the biggest risks of all are, are, is cybercrime, honestly. And I do a lot of work in the cybersecurity industry for that reason as a sort of a, a C-3PO. I speak the language of executives and I speak the language of technicians and I can interpret between the two of them. But the, the point is, yeah, the, the, the biggest risks of all um, really uh, more, more so than espionage and theft of proprietary uh, information and trade secrets is simply that the bad actors find any and every opportunity to to break in, whether it's to to extort a company, to steal data. Uh, and the, their abilities to do this mostly are based on human weakness. Okay, You have some of them that are able to drill into a fortified system because they're very clever, but most of them will simply exploit the weakest link in the chain, which is humans, which is Everything, once again, from a spam email that you click on to social engineering in which you start to engage the confidence of individuals. And this is what happened to Twitter in 2020. And if it happens to them, if it happens to Twitter and Microsoft and companies of that size with that kind of defense budget, it can happen to anybody. So the biggest weakness that corporate leaders must recognize is that the, the weakest link in their chain is also their strongest one, their people. And how they handle those people, how they train and support those people will make the difference. Especially, as you said, down at the beginning, if people are working from home, they're, they're, they're working from their home office, um, how familiar are they with how to fortify their home office, their router, their Wi-Fi? Um, most people aren't, aren't aware of what to do for the same reason. They're scared. They're scared of looking stupid. They're scared of the time and the effort of having to learn something so abstract. And consequently, you leave yourself as open to infection as you would if you, you know, drank questionable water from a swamp somewhere. You're really leaving yourself open to complete corporate exploitation. Yeah, you bring up a really interesting point about the bad actors. It's not just their technical acumen that um, presents the danger. It's their studying and understanding the vulnerability. So it's as much about their uh, really paying attention to human psychology right, and behavior than just having the, I guess, the technical skills to go and do those bad things. Oh, indeed. I mean, we, we, look at, we look at tools and things um, the way they were designed to be used. A simple example, you go online, you want to buy something online. There's a form where you've got to put in your, your credit card information. And, you know, we all look up the top to make sure that it's secure, or at least you should, uh, before you put your credit card information. Because that form for you and me is a place where you put credit card information. The bad actor, however, sees that very same form as a, as a, a, a hole in the wall into which they can inject code to do all kinds of dangerous things. Uh, so it, it becomes, they see opportunities where we see normal functional abilities. You might have a technician coming in from a third party to do some work on your network or even on your air conditioning system. Okay, person shows up wearing, a, you know, wearing overalls with their name on a little patch on, the, on their chest. Uh, you trust it. The guy's there, the person is there to do the air conditioning. But what if that person is actually uh, brought on by some threat actor who knows how to get inside the office and leave something behind that will penetrate the network? We see a person, a technician, they see an opportunity to get in. It's that perpetual vigilance that corporations need to require um, to step away from implicit trust and basically question everything. And unfortunately, um, I don't want to knock management, but people who grew up as managers in the 70s and 80s and 90s before this was a real thing still carry generally that same mindset and therefore do not see these kinds of threats when they're literally standing in front of them. That's a big problem. Well, let's talk about leaders for a minute, Steve. So in 
the companies that you've worked with where you have seen successful proactive strategies, what is the role of the leader? What are the behaviors of leaders that really can positively impact the right kind of change? Leaders must learn to listen uh, much more than they have before. And I mean, again, we're talking broad generalizations and there's probably lots of great leaders who are doing this already. But when I give my presentations, I put up a slide which shows a, a, a black rotary dial phone. And I you know, I make a joke and say, who, how, who, who here can recognize what this thing is? And I use the black rotary dial phone as a symbol of what life was like in the analog era. It wasn't just simply about the phone. Where do you get the phone from? The phone company. So basically, people who grew up in those decades grew up in an era where there was a, a significantly clear hierarchy. There was one phone mm-hmm. company where yeah. you got your phone from. And this translates into a management or leadership style, which is purely hierarchical and procedural based on management styles of the 70s and 80s. We need to flip that around so that that leaders become essentially followers of their people, the ones who have the boots on the ground, to learn far more uh, rather than to speak at them. Leaders have huge responsibilities for guiding their company forward, no question about that. But the way you guide it forward is to know what is happening right there uh, out uh, on the ground level. Uh, So... Bottom line, and I say this not not as just simple an esoteric idea, but the statistics that I've been able to pull together in doing research for uh, tech and, and non-tech companies shows shockingly that the majority of leaders, C-suite executives, and uh, members of directoral uh, boards of directors still know very little about the technology that is running their company. They are very disinterested in IT and security issues considering them to be belong to solely the IT silo. It's not our issue, it's IT's department. And the point is, it's not. This is the this is the, the blood that pumps through the body of this company. And so executives need to listen and understand not only their frontline workers, but also their IT people. And IT people need to learn how to speak executive language and to get a seat at that table because this is the pulse this is the existence of your company. It's not just simply uh, an appendage. I think the other aspect of it is you were talking about leadership behaviors is the difference in a hierarchical structure where it's more command control, it's more direct, uh, as opposed to um, a mindset from a leader to be more empowering and to think mm-hmm. in terms of how can I enable uh, my team. And yes. that is it falls into this category that I'm really passionate about, which is more around servant leadership. Yes, yes. And there is a wonderful example that people can turn to that I, someone that I, I admire hugely, and that's that's Dan Price, who is the CEO of Gravity Payments. He's taken this route to become a servant leader and to pay his employees a very generous starting salary and to cut his salary down to the same and to empower people the same way that, that give them that opportunity to learn on their own time and in their own way and give them the recognition of their, their validity and dignity within the organization. This is this is new concepts to those who have learned how to manage in a hierarchical command and control structure or who prefer that. There are some who climb to the top simply because they crave that power. But unfortunately, that power um, evaporates when the people over whom you have the power either don't stay or stay but don't evolve. And that becomes, uh, it's like the emperor having no clothes. You don't have a company um, of any worth if your people don't have the strength to move forwards. Well, in the reality, and we see all of the statistics now about the great resignation and the mm-hmm. migration and decisions people are making, the reality is um, 
really the power is in the individual to make choices about uh, what's important to them. And the premium to find top talent has never been greater than right now, the competitiveness out there. So if you're not really there and supporting your employees, following as you talk about in, in a way that really makes them thrive and grow, the reality is you're not going to be able to retain them. And the cost of trying to get a replacement is, uh, and the time is going to be great. Oh, it's enormous. Absolutely. It is the cost, just like it is with customers. You know, customer attraction and retention is something that every manager and leader understands. But when it comes to employees, there has been, again, this assumption that people will stay because they're afraid to leave. And that is, it's a fear issue. Uh, people will stay in a job, even a dead end job, because they've got bills to pay and they're afraid of the unknown. But one of the big things that has happened in the last few years is that people have recognized that there are other jobs out there. Um, not necessarily the exact same job, switching apples for apples, but other employment opportunities, including freelancing or gig economy. It is it is a legitimate way of making a living. I mean, I am a small business owner, and I can basically say I've been doing the gig economy thing for 25 years. Um, the joke that I give, in, again, when I do my stand-ups, is that I've been looking for work for 25 years, but the funny thing is I keep finding it because when you know how to do it, the work is there. And uh, this, I think more and more people are recognizing that it's just not worth it. Either, you know, one or two or three hours per day of commuting plus daycare costs and all the other things that support, you know, buying a car just so you can commute to make payments on the car. Um, or those, for example, in healthcare who've just simply burned out because uh, leadership in, in hospitals, you know, isn't supporting these extreme situations under which they work. They're saying, it's not worth it to me anymore to be a nurse or a doctor. I'm leaving. I'm going to change my job. So this is a new thing. The great resignation is a real thing. Um, and despite the, the, the rumors we have of recession and all the things that are happening at this very moment, the point is people are far more career independent than they ever have been. And they're, they're voting with their feet in large numbers. And again, managers need to recognize they don't have the hold over their employees that they used to have in this pre- uh, basically the, the decades prior to the 2020s. Now, uh, a few minutes ago, you were talking about, in many cases, where senior leaders distance themselves and they, they don't understand the underlying technologies that's really fueling their business enough. Can you talk a little bit about the dynamic of internal translation of that technical understanding, the internal communication? So there are experts in any organization, right, that are trying to translate in order to encourage better understanding. Have you seen that work well? Uh, what, what are your thoughts around that? And, and how does that relate to the overall concept of workplace fear? Well, I mean, I think this, first of all, from workplace fear, uh, you know, executives and leaders can have fear too. Uh, fear of losing face, you know, fear of not being seen as a great leader uh, and therefore losing their position and all the benefits that come with it. Uh, so they will tend to pre or pretend that they know what's going on even when they don't. And I have, I have, counseled individuals like this many, many times over the years, um, too afraid to ask questions about how the technology works. Um, but the point is, yeah, they need to recognize that in just the same way they'll be looking and scanning their stock prices and, and scanning the, the marketplace for their competitors and, and, and uh, all the things that leaders do, um, the need to understand what's under the hood of their own company has never been greater. And if they do not understand, for example, what um, quantum computing is, or what a um, you know a, a spear phishing is. All these terms that they may have heard don't really get. They need to be able to ask. They need to be able to ask the people who can advise them uh, 
clearly and in ways they can understand. The problem is two-sided because a lot of engineers in IT can speak this language using IT language, which makes people's eyes glaze over. So there's got to be this, this capacity for both sides to understand each other in the context of what this means strategically for the company. What is, uh, you know, what is the difference between phishing and spear phishing? What is business email compromise? Um, these are all concepts that are, have nice terms to them that leaders need to know. So if they are afraid, um, I always say these are new times. These are very new times. So you can blame the times for wanting to sit in on a course with the rest of your staff to understand how a, you know, how cybersecurity works. There is no shame in admitting you don't know something if you take the steps to know it, to learn it. And it's very, very encouraging when you know senior leaders sit down with their team and learn together because it, it endorses the learning and actually plants far more fertile ground for the employees to continue learning this as well. So yeah, it, it's a flipping of the, the power structure that any leader and manager too, managers in departments, need to recognize that we have to flip this around to admit, if you don't know something, that's a mark of pride. If you then take that lack of knowledge and seek out uh, to know what it is you don't know. That is how you neutralize all fear, is by finding out what you need to know. So there's great potential for leaders to do really well if they are willing to accept this as a new protocol for leadership. Yeah, that transparency and the ability to show vulnerability in front of mm -hmm. the people that you lead it and it becomes contagious i mean we're in times of a, of a contagious virus but the reality is behavior um, drives um, additional behavior and so the leader sets the tone and if you're admitting hey i don't quite understand that can you explain it again or where can i go to people really respond to that don't they when they see a leader who's um, comfortable in their own skin to be able to show that vulnerability Absolutely. You don't have to be the tough person, the tough guy in the room to be the leader. In fact, the better leaders are the ones that are far more humble, self-effacing, and again, a listen before speaking. Uh, that is a great sign of strength. I and mean, even if you want to take it from some of the cultural icons we've seen in the movies, um, the, the leaders of whether it's the, the good side or the bad side, even the, the godfather type gangsters are people who seldom ever travel with weapons on them. They don't need to. And that's the cool thing. You, you, when you don't need the kinds of symbols of strength to show your strength, the strength appears. And some of the greatest leaders uh, over the last few hundred years are those that don't show up with spears and guns in hand, but simply their sheer presence. They have far greater strength than the immediate. And that I always find to be amazingly impressive. We can all do that. This is not a matter of a, of a power struggle. This is a matter of saying, I want to grow a successful company. Humility and the willingness to learn and the willingness to admit that I have more to learn is far more appealing, not only to employees and, you know, again, retaining and keeping the best employees, but to customers and shareholders who say, this is someone who understands that business is human before it's mechanical. It's a great opportunity for people to do that. And even as the dynamics of how we work is changing more and more people working virtual and doesn't look like we're going to go back entirely to pre-pandemic reality. I think there's the, I hear the term new normal all the time. It's, it's mm -hmm. out there. We're working differently. Steve, do you, do you see any sort of dynamic? So in terms of physical environment, if we're not all co-located and now we're virtual, we're using technology to connect, does that uh, impact in any way the whole digital transformation and the workplace fear 
uh, dynamic uh, that you see. Oh, it certainly does. And I've spent much of the last two years just talking on this topic because, again, many managers don't like the idea of working from home. Why? Number one, whether they admit it or not, is because they can't trust their employees. How can I trust my employees to do their work if they're sitting at home? Maybe they're going to be watching TV all afternoon. Uh, that, that again, is there's so many things wrong with that question. First of all, the inability to trust your employees. But secondly, holding employees to the same kind of nine to five um, arch- archetype that we had prior to the 2020s. There is nothing uh, that happened in the office that can't happen online in terms of getting work done. Uh, they will say, for example, well, I can't have the spontaneous meetings and conversations. You know, I can't pull someone into my office and chat uh, or stick my head over the cubicle and chat. The point is, the video chats we've experienced over the last two years, essentially Zoom and, and, and uh, Google, um, um, uh, Google Meet and Microsoft Teams and so forth, is kind of video chat 1.0. Uh, you know, just a bunch of screens, a bunch of faces on the screen. We've all grown tired of that, no question. But the fact is, the immersive environments that have now evolved mean that you can have a virtual office without turning yourself into a cartoon character uh, where you can be together all day, even if you haven't got anything to say, and have that know, that ability to tap somebody's shoulder and have a spontaneous conversation, to, to call meetings. All the things that you want to do, that you used to do, are all available on the second generation of, of basically virtual presence technologies. My thought also is that there's a fear factor in terms of the loss of power, that managers enjoy walking the halls because that's their territory, this is their people, and there's a power sense here. And that becomes a significant transformation mentally as well as digitally to say that I can have my people work from wherever they are, not only from wherever they are, but from whenever they are. If I choose to work from 9 till noon and then pick it up again from 6 p.m. till 9 p.m., so long as I get the work done that you want me as my boss to get done, that should be the new thing rather than have a 9 to 5 model that everybody must follow. And the companies that are already embracing this, you know, I don't care or don't mind where you work, when you work or how you work, as long as you get your work done, doesn't matter if you've got to walk the dog in between this stuff. Do it the way your body and mind and life demands. Once again, you get greater engagement, greater productivity and a far greater success factor than adhering to a 1970s style of hierarchy. So those who grab it and understand it are going to benefit extremely well. Yeah, it really is a very personal experience. And, you know, you were talking about the trust factor of uh, leaders that don't, don't think uh, maybe their workers are working all the time. Maybe they're watching TV. I've actually seen the opposite can be true uh, when people are working from home. Sometimes it's even harder to really have that distinction between work and personal. It's just easier to keep working, right? Because you're you're in your home office. So I think the burnout and the overwork is as big or an even bigger issue than than the lack of the trust or, or workers that are slacking. Yeah, there's there's a lot of work to get done, but the um, the, the the key secret here, and I have to attribute this to a, a colleague of mine whose name is her name is Beth Banks Cohen. She said this better than anybody's ever said it, uh, which is that doesn't matter if they've got laundry to do or to walk the dog. The fact that they have other domestic chores to do will actually help get the work done because there's other stuff to do. Um, most people don't, know, don't want to admit that in the majority of office scenarios, a lot of time is spent running out the clock. Uh, things are done because we've got to fill out the time till five o'clock or fill out the hour of this meeting. 
um, you know, I'm speaking in broad generalities here, but if you really want to look at the ergonomics and the, the efficiency of uh, an office workplace, it's it's sadly lacking. And I mean, this is my, the first book that I brought out in 2005 on time management. It was all based on this very fact that only 20% of most workplace time is spent on truly productive stuff. So we have a culture of of less than ideal productivity inside of an office but when people are working from home yes if they've got other stuff to do picking up the kids from school and stuff like that it sounds crazy to blend that with work but the actual thing is the mental distraction the variety the physical movement of the body paired with the fact that these other things have to get done will actually lead to greater commitment to getting work done than someone saying oh i'm not going to finish this today because i've got to pick up the kids it's the opposite i've got to get it finished so i can pick up the kids. And I think those who embrace the work from home model as a completely different model will see people, employees generally want to work hard. They want to be recognized for doing great stuff and they want to grow. You know, the majority of workers are not slackers who are just trying to hide from work. They want to show that they can do good things and to further their career. If that's done in the context of home amidst the laundry and the dishes and all those other things that are daily, and that still yields the productivity and exceeds the product of the productivity of the office, you've got a winning formula. And some managers are willing to take that chance to have a look. Others are fighting it tooth and nail right now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you give a lot of business advice. I want to flip it around, Steve, and ask you, what's the best business advice you've ever received? It's two, There are two pieces. They're both very short. One is it's people first. Okay. So your employees, your customers, it's always whatever you manufacture, whatever you do in the business as a service, it's people that make it happen. And it's people who make it continue. So one is people first. The other one is never stop learning. Give yourself and your, your employees the opportunity to continually learn on a daily basis, new things iteratively and in small amounts, because things are changing very quickly, as you said at the very beginning. So people first, and never stop learning. I have to keep those two together because they're both equally valuable. Very timely advice. And as you look to the future, we've got so much happening going on. We've talked about challenges, but but great breakthroughs. But when you think about the future, Steve, what makes you optimistic? What makes me most optimistic is the democratization of technology and the access to work. Uh, we're seeing people in very different economic and uh, physical geographic locations and situations now being able to access work that was only at one time privy to a certain group. So for example, I talk about coding. Um, every time I look at someone in, at a grocery store who look, who's looking at, a, at a, um, an automated checkout machine and they always say, oh, there goes another job, another cashier's job out the window. I say, yes, but that, that machine creates three other jobs, someone to create the machine, someone to write the code and somebody to manage the machine. And um, these these jobs are not exclusive to those who can take and, and go to expensive universities. People can learn to code for free online. Now, I'm focusing solely on coding, but the same thing applies to any line of work. More people of different styles, abilities, and again, economic situations uh, are able to now access this world of work. I love seeing countries, for example, that the so-called have-not countries that have been bled dry over the last few centuries, now getting access to uh, zero-cost internet. So they can now become part of this economy themselves. So what makes me optimistic is the fact that more people are now available to access or, or able to access 
a new and exciting world, not just in technology and computers, but in any industry. They have access to learning, they have access to doing business with companies a globe, you know, half a globe away and can participate fairly. And I think that that in increase in people is going to do good things for all of us. Well, that is the ultimate democracy and, and exciting to think about that. So as we start wrapping up the conversation, Steve, you have any other final suggestions for business leaders that are looking to take their digital transformation initiatives to the next level? Yes, I would say look at your people and learn what they are fearing and give them the opportunity to learn how to solve those fears. If it's a technological fear of how do I use this, this technology, don't just send them to a, to a one-day class because they'll forget 90% of what is taught. Give them the opportunity to learn iteratively and safely over time because uh, it's not just the skills that will grow that way, but their loyalty and their, their love of working in this organization will grow too. So look to your people. Understand the emotional side of them, even if you yourself are not an emotional or a people person. Uh, look to the fact that the fuel of your company is people, and the fuel of people is emotion. And if you can leverage that, then your company will be on much more solid ground moving into this, this decade. That makes so much sense. Steve, where can people reach you, find out more about uh, what you've learned, and uh, give them inspiration going forward? Well, thank you, Dan. The uh, easiest way to do it is just go to steveprentice.com, and that's uh, spelt S-T-E-V-E, -E, and then P-R-E-N-T-I-C-E, steveprentice.com. Everything about me and my links to social media and stuff are there, and that's the easiest way to do it. Well, Steve, thanks again for joining today, giving us uh, great insight into uh, what some of the biggest barriers are to this power of digital transformation and reminding all of us that ultimately it comes back to the human factor. Thanks again. Oh, it's been a great pleasure, Dan. Thank you for having me here. And a reminder to all of you to please go out, rate and review this podcast. It's really important to get more visibility and, and give us the feedback we need. You can easily do that on all the major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcast. And as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.